hello everybody, as we go to Israel's third Women in Media Networking event. Before we get cracking, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we stand, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I don't know how many of you have been here before or whether this is your first time, but I just wanted to thank you for coming along and spending the time and the money to support other women. It is so incredibly important. I'd also like to acknowledge early on the patron of Women in Media, Carolyn Jones. She is our voice of reason and we are so privileged to have her as our patron. I was going to start off tonight by saying from little things big things grow. But as a journalist I shouldn't be using cliches like that. <laughs> I guess that's a way of saying that our mentoring and networking programs are going great guns. So much so that I've had some of the mentors say to me they've learned as much from their mentees as their protégés have learned from them which I think is a wonderful accolade for the program. We decided to run it as a six-month pilot first, just to work out any bugs. It's going so well, we've decided to throw the doors open in October. So please, if you'd like to be a mentor or a mentee, get onto our website, womeninmedia.net, and apply. We'll have application forms there from the 1st of October. We're also spreading national. Most of the other sites are up and running, and they will be by October. So please tell your friends interstate to join, because they're more the merrier. I'd also like to thank our sponsors because we can't have grown to this size without the help of our sponsors. Mia, the Walkley Foundation, Media Super, Ogilvy, McGuigan Wines and Signet Bay Pearls. Now, if you haven't put your business card in the bowl at the front, please duck out and do so very quickly before we get going properly because that's a wonderful prize that we'll be drawing that at the end. The theme tonight is the confidence trick. Also known as the imposter syndrome. I don't know how many of you have heard about the imposter syndrome. I can see some nodding there. Yes, Caroline! <laughs> and I suppose the genesis of this came with a conversation I had earlier this year with a woman who I would say is one of the most successful, powerful women in the media. I won't mention her name because it was a private discussion we had. This woman and I were on a debating panel together. I said to her afterwards, how are you going, Dahl? How are you going with the juggle with work and the kids and all that kind of stuff? And the first thing she said to me was, you know, every time before I write a column, present a TV program or do a radio broadcast, there's a voice in my head that says, why are you doing this? You're an imposter. You're not good enough to do this. It was that voice of questioning. And I looked at her and said, you? You're kidding me. You're the least likely person to have imposter syndrome. So we thought we'd talk about this tonight. Is imposter syndrome something that's particular to women? Or is it non-gender specific? Do we talk ourselves down? And what can we do about it? At about the same time that uh, the committee was talking about all this, a wonderful woman wrote this book called Women Who Seize the Moment. That woman's name is Angela Priestley. She's the founding editor of Women's Agenda. And she's doing a book signing after this. The books are $20, recommended retail price. So please welcome her up to say a few words. Angela Priestley. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here tonight. Um, I've decided I'm going to come up and do a bit of a confession, so I don't know how this will go, but um, we'll see. So, um, I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised uh, when I recently read in The Atlantic about uh, research findings on the confidence gap that exists between men and women. 
Um, and my lack of surprise wasn't because such a gap couldn't even explain why women don't get promoted at the same rate as men, or why we don't get bonuses, or the same salaries, or reach the same levels of leadership and equal numbers to our male counterparts. Um, I don't believe a woman's confidence explains these uh, systematic, um, uh, systemic, I should say, workplace gender inequality that exists out there. But I wasn't surprised because I've, uh, having been a girl, a woman, most of you can relate to, and a mother myself, I know that from before we can even walk, uh, we are being celebrated, uh, judged, according to how good looking or sexy or beautiful or put together we appear. It starts by telling a toddler that she's pretty and it goes on as we continually acknowledge all the physical attributes of young girls. Um, constantly sending these signals that uh, what we wear, how we cut our hair, how we do our makeup, how much we weigh, will all be more significant markers of uh, who we are and what we can actually achieve than um, our actual competence and our ability. So by high school, we're then walking corridors, feeling self-conscious and assessing our success in the system according to how we look. It becomes a bit of it affects our schoolwork, exams, future decisions, it affects ambition. And while these effects may move away from appearance, it can later translate into how we believe others perceive who we are. And I know that some may dismiss this as a self-esteem issue and call confidence something else, and that may be true, but I think that when your self-esteem is stretched and pulled relentlessly, especially during the development years, it's easy to see how it could snap and ultimately affect the confidence you carry into the early stages of your career and therefore into the rest of your career as well. So that was certainly my experience growing up, there's a confession. But I know that I'm one of many, many, many women who have a confidence problem and it has hurt my career. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you how it's hurt my career. I've, I always wanted to be a journalist and my confidence was so low at university that I avoided putting my hand up for any opportunities, including internships, meeting mentors, uh, applying for jobs and opportunities to showcase my work, I aim to basically get through class instead of standing out. And then once I graduated, I had a, a great, I had great marks, I had an excellent degree, but I had very little confidence about my future career. And I actually made a conscious decision, decision to not become a journalist. I decided that I was too shy, but I had very um, that I wouldn't be able to pick up the phone, that I, wouldn't be able to, I wasn't outgoing enough to ask the really tough questions. Um, so thankfully I didn't actually have to experiment too long with other career options. <laughs> um, I met a B2B publisher at an event and I just basically got the courage I could to go up and ask him for a job. And so I became a technology journalist. Uh, so writing about enterprise uh, storage systems and data retention <laughs> issues. <laughs> and basically all these things that I had absolutely no idea about, which actually gave me a lot of confidence because I realised I could do that. Um, and well, I loved it. And but, you know, still when I was offered uh, an opportunity to edit a trade business magazine in my early 20s, I had to be convinced that it was a good idea by the person who was offering that to me. And at one point I actually moved from being an editor to being a deputy editor because I had told myself that I wasn't actually good enough to be an editor and I need to go back and learn something else. And it turned out that the six-year-old guy that I was reporting to didn't actually know that much more than me. So <laughs> I'll find out. Um, so that lacking confidence has been one of the reasons, but not the only reason, I want to say, 
But one of the reasons why I feel like I've spent a good portion of my career waiting. So that's waiting for opportunities, waiting for permission, waiting for qualifications, waiting on experience, waiting to be the right age before I could finally consider myself to be the confident adult, confident editor, journalist, the mother that I always just expected that you just become. So for my book, Women Who Seize the Moment, I, um, I basically set about interviewing um, leading female businesswomen about their careers. I wanted to find out what separates those who wait from those who simply go out and achieve what they want to constantly achieve the market of things. And so I put what I learnt down into 11 lessons which are in the book. But I can safely say and happily say uh, that it's not as simple as saying that some women are more confident than other women. Um, as I did discover varying aspects of confidence throughout the book, but also different ways for getting around any lacking confidence or, or, and or exploiting, say, an overabundance of confidence. These women find a way to get past any issues around their own confidence. They learn to back themselves first before anyone else can. They know there's no such thing as luck. Um, they, they've learned somewhere along the way to stop apologising. They improvise their careers according to the opportunities, as, as well as the adversity that has come their way, and they voice their ambitions. They work hard, but they don't rely on hard work alone help them get the success they desire. Um, so no one can make themselves confident overnight, but there are things we can do to stop waiting on some sort of mysterious amount of competence that we believe will eventually come to us and solve our career problems. Um, so I've got copies of my book to sell tonight. It's available on Amazon and in some bookstores. Um, or you can get in contact with me if you just want to have a chat about it or like about another point. Um, so please enjoy the panel. I know every woman's, uh, every woman's experience with confidence is different to my own, and some of you won't be able to relate to mine at all. Um, I also know there's no way to fix another's, uh, another woman's confidence overnight, but I think we can support each other, and that's why it's so good for being here tonight. So thank you, and enjoy. Thank you, Angela, for those wise and honest words. A couple of things tonight we're very happy about. One is having Angela here. Another is that APRA has given us this space again, so thank you so much to APRA. The third one is our panel. We had a wish list, and each woman that we contacted got back to us within 24 to 48 hours to say, yes, yes, please, yes. We are incredibly privileged to have a panel of this calibre tonight. So let's get cracking. The panel will chat for about oh, half an hour or so, then we've got 15 minutes for questions. So start thinking about what questions you might like to ask. The hashtag tonight is Women in Media, and we'd love you to put this out on social media as much as possible. So I'd like to invite up a woman who I've seen moderating many panel discussions, and I think she's probably one of the best in the country at this. Her name is Catherine Fox. You'll know her from the Corporate Woman column for many years in the Fin and also from her book, Seven Myths of Women and Work. Please welcome Catherine Fox. Thanks, Tracy. No pressure then. In fact, I can confidently say that we have no imposters on our panel tonight. They're all the real deal. They're fabulous. Um, and I'm just going to ask them to make their way elegantly um, up onto the stage. <laughs> As I introduce you, it is a wonderful panel, and, and please make the most of it. Um, I'm not one of those moderators who gets offended if you shoot your hand up in the middle, uh, as long as you don't interrupt me. 
others into, into a room or a team um, to help you and to support you. I think that's what confidence is for me. But do you think that certainly in the media, do we still default to a male sort of a, a, a type A personality version of confidence? When we start to talk about it, it'd be great if you had more confidence. Is that what we're talking about still? Possibly. Mm. But I'll give you an example. I am... Um, uh, when uh, my predecessor uh, left the position, um, uh, my boss, uh, Mark Scott, um, you know, had, had discussions with a range of people in the ABC um, about the role. And when he came to, to talk to me about it, I genuinely thought he was coming to seek my advice on my male colleagues. <laughs> and so when he, he actually suggested that I might think about applying, I thought it was hysterical. And then I, I, I went home and I thought, that's terrible. You know, and, and my kind of advice and my message to all of you today is, you know, we've got to start to really recognise the skills that we have and to step up when those opportunities are there. And it's not that, you know, I, was, I had a great job, I, was, I felt that I was very much on top of that job, um, but the notion that I wouldn't have, um, you know, looked at that opportunity and, and run, you know, run towards it um, and I really genuinely thought that he was coming to seek my advice on, on the male colleagues, many of whom would have done a fabulous job in this role. Uh, so it's interesting. Hmm, it is. Um, Chris, when, when we talk about um, confidence, I, I imagine for many people who don't work in television or indeed in broadcast um, would think anyone who can get up and read the news which goes out to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, must have just an innate level of confidence. Um, and I gather from some of your comments that that's not, that's not the case. But explain to me what gives you the, the resilience to do that, because you, you, you do it all the time, it's, it's a live broadcast. I mean, it must have enormous pressure. Well, it could be a Pavlovian issue with me because I've been doing it for a while now, but I'm not sure whether it's a Pavlovian response. Or a, oh, camera. Good evening, seven news starts now. You know, I'm... <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've never actually thought about that. And I think, just listening to Kate talk, Kate has a very sensitive new age woman view of confidence. In the world that I come from, in the commercial television world, confidence is not ever admitting you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't mean that I don't want to. It doesn't mean that I don't routinely have this internal dialogue in my head. But in the world that I come from, you admitting that you might not be able to do something or voicing that or, or actively seeking help without doing it on the slide, like, hey, what do you know about this? Um, is almost an admission of weakness. And in the world that I come from, the sort of humility that you're talking about, which I really value personally, is not welcome. You know, so, and I guess the thing that makes me, you know, be able to sit in front of a camera and read is because it, it, it's what I've learned to do, for starters. Secondly, I have a small child and a large mortgage, so <laughs> I have to do that. But I think for me, and I don't know whether this is just because of my personal background, so I grew up in Western Sydney, and I have a myriad of self-doubts. I'm with a similar story to yours when I got called into Alan Bateman's office in 1996 and I just started working at seven, and I thought I was in strife again about my hair. <laughs> Go figure, it's 2014 and nothing's changed. But, but he walked, I walked in and he said, I'd been at seven for uh, seven or eight months, and he just said, oh, we'd, um, we'd like you to host face-to-face. -face. And I went, what? And I, thought, I, thought, I was sitting the same thing, thinking, I thought this is about my hair. 
because the part in my hair was too white at one point, seriously, in 1996. So I just went, really? Me? You want me to do it? And he just said, yeah. And I said, well, the last time I covered state politics was in 1998, and you're talking about federal politics, and I've never worked in Canberra. Yeah, but you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And this is a man trying to say this to me, and I know we want to demonise them, but sometimes they're not worth it. And I just said to him, it'll be like Gidget does politics, man. <laughs> like, you seriously don't want me doing this. And this is sort of the Pauline Hanson was starting to rise. You know, there were a whole lot of factors happening in federal politics at the time that I thought were incredibly important that I shouldn't be talking about. So I used to crack gags. I got, got out of there and I rang a friend and I said, hey, you know that political show we've got on Sunday mornings? Yeah. They want me to host it. It'll be like off my face with me hosting it, not face to face, you know. <laughs> but you know what? I thought there was something in me where I just thought, you know what? I think I have to say yes to this. I was too scared not to. So fear is a big factor for me with confidence. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, I'll give it a crack. And, and that's the thing, you know, it doesn't really matter to me how much self-doubt you have. And there have been times, trust me, during the last federal election coverage where I was having an out-of-body experience, thinking I'm surrounded, I've got Christopher Pine, I've got Alexander Downer, I've got Jeff Kennett, I've got Paul Howes and mad Bob Catter. I'm surrounded by a bunch of blokes who are professional bullies for a living. What am I doing here? <laughs> but for me, the recurring theme with confidence has always been you've got to turn up. You've got to turn up. You know what? And the worst thing you can do is really screw it up. But you've got to turn up because if you don't turn up and you don't do it, then you're stuffed. And why give up? Because you've got amazing women like Caroline Jones, who's here tonight, who's like, was like many God for me downstairs. <laughs> she was a real trailblazer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'm so glad God's a woman. But, but she was a real trailblazer. And we owe it to women like her to have a go. We owe it to women like her to turn up. Because the legacy that she left women like me cannot be underestimated, you know. So I think that's what makes me, you know, have the guts to sit there and read an autocue, which really isn't brain surgery. I just, I had a, um, following on from that, I had a, uh, a friend who contacted me shortly after I was appointed to this position and she was a commercial um, uh, reporter in Melbourne. And in, in a lot of the interviews that I did after my appointment, I kind of... Um, I, I very much glossed over being the first female to this role and, and kind of got a bit cranky about it. You know, it was merit-based and, uh, and I got this job because I deserved this job. And I really went out of my way to make that point. And she, um, she rang me and she said, um, I'm going to tell you a story and I hope that as a result of this, you embrace the fact that you are the first woman in this job. And she said... She was working, she was a fantastic woman. I worked with her for about two years and she was the kind of woman in the newsroom that could do any job. She was a great cause, she was a fantastic producer, but she was a brilliant reporter and really courageous. And anyway, one day she was out doing state politics and uh, the cause uh, called her and said, I need you to swap. And one of her male colleagues was doing a, uh, I think it was book week at a primary school and they needed her to swap because there was actually a yarn happening at state parliament. And they couldn't have the bloke doing the book week and the woman doing state parliament. And she said she walked in uh, that night and she quit. And she didn't even bother to have the argument with them because she felt that that was a culture she could never change. She had proved herself on every front. 
And so she said, that's why you have to talk about it, you have to be proud about it, and you need to make sure that you are embracing that and setting an example for other women. And it completely changed my attitude to, to, to being in this role and what that means and what that means for all of those around me. And I, th I think that's a really important point. I think we'll, we'll come back to that. But I, I also wanted to just focus for a minute on one of the things that I think is slightly unfortunate when we have this discussion and when we talk about women lacking confidence. Because I think while we know that for a whole lot of reasons about how we're socialised, Angela's spoken to us already about that, but um, it's not as though women generically or innately lack confidence. And Sananda, one of the things that, that worries me is that we might end up giving the impression that it's women's fault that they're not getting ahead. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you exactly. made the wrong decision there. If only you had confidence, only everything had confidence. would be fixed in terms of the gender gap, uh, gender pay gap. No, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, there are clearly systemic issues that need to be addressed um, first and foremost. But I do think that journalism is one big confidence trick. So we do need to find a way, whatever it is, to try and um, cultivate that confidence and that self-belief. And in terms of the difference between men and women, one of the things that um, resonated for me when I read Amanda Wilson, the first female editor of the Sydney Morning Herald's column in The Guardian about editing while female, was she talked about men having self-doubts, which of course they do, but saving those conversations for the bathroom mirror, whereas women all too often bring those doubts into work and um, point them out to people in a way that I think really does us no favours. You know, that, that famous journalistic icon, Dita Von Tees, once said <laughs> that um, she makes a point of never drawing attention to her flaws because if you don't do that, people usually don't notice, and if you do do it, then that's all they notice. Um, and I think that's really good advice, and that's advice I've sort of tried to follow in my career as well. Um, but I don't think anyone's calling for overconfidence or hubris or pretending to know something when really you don't. Um, I hear what you're saying about not showing weakness, but there's a difference between, you know, showing that weakness and, and kind of recognising yourself, OK, here are the skills where I need to really develop, here's what I'm going to do to address that, I'm not going to let that hold me back. You know, here's where I want to be, here's how I'm going to get there. But of course it's not, not particularly straightforward for women either, because when we talk about a lack of confidence or a perceived one, um, there is also this idea that there's a series of levers that you can pull um, and therefore, you know, become more assertive, speak up in meetings and so on. All of it can be really worthwhile advice, but we also have to be very aware that the research is quite clear on this and it's not too long ago Sheryl Sandberg was saying there should be a ban on the word bossy. I want to bash her. Can yeah. I just get that out there? <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. Like, the lean-in stuff, I had three chapters in, I went, wow, yes, 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 yes. Beyond that, I just went, yeah, that's great, Cheryl, mate, Shezza. But when there's some bloke on the other table, if you're leaning in wildly, and this is the thing, I don't think being more assertive is the answer. Like, I'm just talking about the world that I work in, but I, I don't agree with it. I think speak softly and carry a big stick is about the best thing you can do, and I know that's a cliche and I'm a journalist and I shouldn't use it, but I think that's a really good way, because then you take the bastards by surprise. But, but while we're busy leaning in, there's, trust me, there's always going to be some bloke that wants to push you back out. And I think it's about it's resilience. a social cost yeah. to pay there. You know, there's a penalty for women. You know, you're seen as stuck up, aggressive, pushy, um, whereas those, those uh, qualities might be viewed quite differently if it was coming from a man. But I think one of the things that resonated for me as well when Angela was speaking was this idea of waiting, you know, thinking that 
maybe one day some magical fairy godmother will come and suddenly you'll be worthy of that job or that, um, that pay rise or that position and realising that I think in my personal experience you don't ask, you don't get. I mean you may, you may ask and you may not get it straight away but sometimes that initial asking is just firing a warning shot and saying here's where I would like to be and here's where I'm sort of hoping to go and I think that starting that process, it may take time is, and learning how to how to do that is really important skill. Yeah, and realizing that um, you know it, it, it's often a long process. So if in fact you're having pay negotiations, it's not going to happen in one meeting. Um, so don't walk away from that meeting thinking that that's that it's over. You know, I think I think that that's a really important point. That sometimes if we don't get the right the signals that we want immediately. Um, then it's like, oh God, it was so painful, I'm not going to go back in and, and have another discussion. ABC people don't take any notice of that. Non-ABC people only. You're on the record now. There's <laughs> <laughs> also that thing of waiting for permission to have the things that you're already ready for. You know, for me, working in Indonesia as a foreign correspondent, that's a... That's been a career goal for me um, since I started in journalism. And I remember when I started thinking that that was something maybe I would do when I was sort of, you know, 40 or 50 or, you know, at the end of my career. 40 or 50 is not that old. Yeah. <laughs> when I was 23 and studying journalism, it seemed old. But now I'm close to 40, it's not that old. But, you know, I, I remember thinking sometime in the sort of fuzzy future and I went to Indonesia and I met... Uh, young journalist called Aubrey Belford who was working at AFP, he was about 24, basically doing my dream job and I sort of explained to him that this was my plan, I would work very hard, study very hard and then maybe one day in the future I would, and he just sort of said, look, you, you speak Indonesian, you've been studying Indonesia at university for years, you've lived here, just come here now, just do it, you know, you don't need to wait and he was right. And that, and Learn on great. the job. That's my one piece of advice for everybody mm. is you don't... Nobody goes into a job knowing how to do that job. You mostly know how to do that job a little bit, but you learn on the job. That's been my experience with every gig I've ever had. I also think a lot of your own confidence and the way that it's handled and asking for things in the workplace that you're talking about is depends hinges a lot on culture and leadership within the organisation. I mean, we can sit here and overanalyse how women think to death, but I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to your resilience, but, but the leadership and the culture within the organisation that you're working for. You know, working in commercial television, I think I've been through maybe 12 different news directors, some of whom were fantastic, some of whom were complete bloody psychopaths. So, and, and, I, and I know, like, in terms of the opportunities that you're given as a woman, in terms of pay negotiations, hello ABC, um, you know, in terms of that sort of thing, it really is dependent on, in my case, I've never worked for a woman, the bloke who's leading the organisation, and some of them are remarkably enlightened human beings, so I don't want anyone to go away from here and think that every man in the workplace is a bastard and they're not going to give you a chance. They will, but I think, to me, a lot of what we're talking about tonight does hinge on how visionary the leadership is within the organisation you're working for. I would completely agree with that. And um, I, I, we recently had a session with um, General David Morrison, who heads up the Army and you know, has clearly done a lot of work recently um, in his own organisation. But... Uh, Early on in his appointment, he gathered a group of senior women together to talk about some of the challenges that he was facing in terms of getting women leaders in 
to uh, into key positions. And I remember he he uh, he said to me, you know, you you've got three children. How did how have you had your career within the ABC? And I I didn't realise at the time, but um, I, I just said to him, well, actually, when I think about it, um, every time I've returned from maternity leave, I've been promoted, or I've been promoted on maternity leave. That's an extraordinary organisation to work for. And, um, and that was interesting, and he made that point with my executive team, and you can now hear. And after, um, <coughs> after that, two of the women on my executive team made the point that, in fact, I had done the same thing with them. And again, it wasn't conscious, but really, really smart women. Um, and uh, I really wanted to continue working with them because they were incredibly skilled. And I just thought, so that's a culture that I work in and it's a culture I, I really, really value. And I just think it's not, it's, you know, it, we, we create our own culture and that's, that's terribly important. It's still, unfortunately, um, the exception unique. rather than the rule. Unique. And one of the things I wanted to um, ask the panel about, and I'd be interested with the audience input too, um, one of the things about conflict, we always talk about it as a personal issue, a personal quality, and that's quite understandable, but what about our confidence in advocating for women's voices to be heard a little bit more? I mean, we are in the media, um, we're gatekeepers in a way. Um, it's still remarkably obvious to us that very few women feature in the pages of newspapers or uh, on TV news. Um, there aren't that many in senior echelons um, with, with uh, present company accepted. So we've still got an issue there, haven't we, and, and on being advocates for women's voices mm. to be legitimised and heard. Look, absolutely. My job is editing opinion pieces from academics, right? So I open my inbox and I see so many pictures from men. They just come in completely unsolicited. And that's great for me as an editor because here's, you know, five pieces and they're all good. And it's quite unusual for... It's not unusual, but it's it's less common for those pictures to come in from women. And I don't know if that's because they're sort of socialised to wait to be asked what their opinion is um, or if men are sort of taught maybe just, you know, if you have an opinion, everybody wants to know what it is. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would I would sort of you know, encourage women also to sort of pitch more. I mean, there's a lesson there for journalists as well to um, to go out and pitch your stories. And also, I think, um, you know, the other important thing is that going back to not blaming women, when I ring up a woman and say, we need someone to write on this issue, the number one reason I hear why I, don't, I can't do that is I don't have time. I've got to go pick up kids, I've got to go get the dinner on. Yeah. I never hear a man say that. Not never, I rarely hear a man say that. Yeah. Yeah. I um, uh, set up Insiders on um, ABC television. I remember spending two months trying to get female panellists. And um, for me, the biggest uh, you know, response was, why would I expose myself to that? And yet we had you know, dozens of male commentators uh, queuing up to, uh, to appear on the program. And that's been a, you know, that program has now been going for uh, 12 years. And it's an ongoing issue for the EP of that program. And I remember speaking to um, uh, to a group of women when I was working in television current affairs um, at a bank and trying to talk to them about, you know, why is it that, you know, I could ring any any mail, any bank, and, you know, they'd be prepared to, to, uh, to offer a view. Um, and it was the same kind of thing. Why would I expose myself to that? Um, which is interesting. It's it is a, interesting. It's putting the head above like, the character. Women are less yeah. likely to speculate. You know, women are much less likely Absolutely. to say, more likely to say, 
oh, I don't know much about that topic, you should speak to this person, they're an expert, um, my area of expertise is very narrow. We want to be certain. Yeah. We want to be, yeah. But also, I also don't blame women for that because I think that there is a trend that when a man speculates, goes on a limb and maybe gets it a bit wrong or his analysis is a bit off, okay, so what? When a woman does that, the, the blame is sort of pinned on her entire gender sometimes. That, um, oh, yeah. They're flag bearers yeah. for an entire gender. And it, it, it's the same thing, the same mechanics we see with women on boards and in senior uh, management in, in businesses. They become, you know, there's an enormous amount of scrutiny on them. Uh, yeah, and pressure, and it, it's very difficult. And maybe it's something to do with, you know, if you're an insider, insiders, for example, or, you know, anything political, A, you run the risk of being bolted. I know Trace has been Andrew bolted. Badge of honour. But... But I think sometimes if you're a woman and on those, on those particular programs, it requires you to have an opinion. And unless you're Michelle Grattan sometimes, you just get savaged. And I can understand why maybe if women have an opinion on those sorts of programs, they don't want to appear strident. They don't want to be told, you know, that they're, they're out of their league. You know, if, you, if they're an attractive woman, what are you doing here? You're a pretty face, it just reads words well. How dare you have, you know, an editorial opinion on something political, you know, or why aren't you at home with the kids, taking the footy? You know, I, I think there are a whole myriad of reasons why, and I know from, from when we did Sunday Sunrise years ago when it was a political interview show that no one watched, and um, <laughs> see, here I am still making apologies for being the commercial devil in the room, and even on face to face, we had the same issues, you know, and I'm going back to the 90s. It was really hard to get women on, and I think it's because they didn't want to appear to be strident, even though they had plenty of opinions themselves. And, and, and also, it, it, it can't be um, forgotten that having had a, our first woman Prime Minister and seeing how she was treated, how women in leadership was a deeply uncomfortable and, and very vicious sort of um, era for us, um, that, that was pretty disturbing. And I think that that can't help but have an influence on women also who are asked to put their hand up or or have an opinion. I know it drives some um, Carol Schwartz, the businesswoman who set up a register of women who are happy to appear in the media. But she said it drives her nuts because any any man from a business background but will be asked about politics, agriculture, um, you know, uh, politics in an, in another country. That's fine, but for a woman, that that's a very that's a risky option. And I think that's that really hasn't shifted much. Do you think? Well, after what Julia Gillard went through, I think it's going to be a brave woman who sticks her head above the parapet and, and, and decides to try and become Prime Minister at some point. You know, she's going to have to be incredibly brave, I think. Well, can I ask you, because we are sort of getting to the point where we'll open up the Q&A, and I don't want this to sound trite, but I did wonder if there's any... There's a lot of people in the audience who are sort of in the early stages of their career, I can say that. I'm your auntie Catherine. <laughs> um, and we certainly wouldn't want any of you to be feeling um, downcast because obviously with this, with this extraordinary array of women, you can see where you can get to and it's fantastic. But what, what sort of things do you think uh, are worth reflecting on about this debate about women and confidence? Because as I say, I'm, I'm a little wary of going too far into the deficit idea. What do you think it's important to think about for them, perhaps when they're, they're starting off or in an early stage of their career, around the confidence issue? Well, look, I had a, um, a, a, um, a lovely... Um, sort of, it, was, it was kind of an uplifting moment for me a couple of years ago. I had um, uh, three children, but two daughters, and... Uh, when my daughter was in kinder, my second daughter was in kinder and her sister was in grade five, um, every Friday they do an assembly and they ask the kids to come up and talk about what they want to be. 
and uh, and so my little one was asked to come up and and uh, she followed a grade four uh, little boy who said that he wanted to be uh, an ophthalmologist and I thought this can't go well really <laughs> and um, so she got up and she said I want to be um, a McDonald's checkout chick but I want to be in the drive-thru and the principal said oh, okay so that's quite specific why do you want to be in the drive-thru and she said because you get to wear those headsets like pop stars and her sister was dying just dying so we got home at the dinner table that night you know her sister's like I can't believe this and you know, and, you know so you want to wear a headset why don't you just become a pop star and she said because I thought about that and I just can't be bothered with all the photographers <laughs> if you wanted to be, but you just don't want to be. I'm never going to worry about you again. And I, I do think, um, like, sorry, the, the relevance, um, I, just, I think you just get out there, and as you were saying before, um, you know, you all have extraordinary skills, put yourselves out there. Um, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Um, and and I, I, I take your point about um, culture. But I really think humility is terribly important and being honest about you and confident about what you don't know. And all of a sudden you will find the people around the table who have confidently been sitting there convincing you that they know all will suddenly uh, be a little bit more humble about what they don't know too. So I just think put yourselves out there. You have absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain. I, I think... Sometimes we overanalyze things, you know, and I was a bit worried coming along tonight thinking, you know, we can call it imposter syndrome, we can talk about the confidence trick, we can give everything labels, but is it just basic old-fashioned insecurity that's actually pretty normal? You know, so I, I think, you know, we can call things all sorts of things, but it's really normal to feel insecure. And I don't think the answer is to become a bloke. I, I, I don't think the answer That's is to lucky. become... Well, a lot of gender reassignment would be That's necessary in this room. But, but I, I don't think the answer is to get cocky, pretend that you know everything. You know, I'm just, There are women like that too. They're not just men like that. But I don't think the answer is, 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 is to do that, is to become you know, a man and behave like a man and lean in like Cheryl tells you to lean in. You know, I think you actually just have to back yourself. And I think... You have, to, you have to work on your resilience. I think you have to work on how resilient you are in terms of how you handle your confidence or lack thereof on how you handle people in the workplace. And in my experience, always saying and asking for help and saying, I really don't know, or what do you know about this to somebody? It, it always works. So Kate's on the money. You know, humility actually is the way to go. And I always think you're much better off in an organisation taking people by surprise and being a quiet achiever. I know in, in, in my professional life, I've always got more sadistic joy out of sitting in a room, having been underestimated by people, and then just doing it, whatever it was, you know, election coverage or, or something, and blowing them away. You know, and there have even been points in my career where... I've done a job so well that they haven't even talked about my hair. <laughs> Which can be a major achievement at times, trust me. 
Look, I think my lasting point, I take your point about wanting to bash Sheryl Sandberg, but um, one thing in that book that did um, jump out at me was this um, research produced by Hewlett-Packard that found that um, women are likely to apply for a job if they see... Men are likely to apply for a job description if they meet 60% of those criteria. Women are likely to apply if they only meet 100%. So... You know, once you know that, you're like, oh, wait, so all these other guys have just got 60%. I've got 60%. I might even have 70 or 80%. So, you know, just be aware that nobody is perfect. We're all totally winging it, including the blokes. So, um, and there's a great article in The Guardian called We Are All Totally Winging It that I really advise you to read on this. Um, and, you know, put, put yourself out of your comfort zone and you will surprise yourself. And nothing builds confidence more than putting yourself out of your comfort zone and performing and, and meeting um, those uh, challenges head on, I think. And I think also encourage each other along the way too. Yes. I think it's terribly important. I think, um, and, and one of the, the things I wanted to say is that the imposter syndrome, if you look at the literature around that, and we were discussing this earlier, there's very few gender differences. Um, once research studies are done, um, men, men suffer from imposter syndrome as well. So I think... There's a bit of a ramping up of this idea of female inadequacy, which, let's be honest, is about sort of the very entrenched male success uh, models that we still have in many organisations and in many institutions. So I think, you know, we're slowly changing that, but I think that we have to, to sort of twig to the fact that we're being held up against a standard that it's very narrow. Um, it's about a male breadwinner model. It was designed by and for men, um, and it is changing, but changing slowly. So I think sort of observing that... And, and seeing your way to get around that um, is, is a good way of looking at it as well. Now, I'm sure there's some burning questions um, on how to avoid the paps, um, uh, <laughs> along with many other things that Kate's daughter can, can help you on that one. Um, have we got anyone wanting to kick off? Yes. Um, uh, so, manager at, at News Corp. So yep. very much in the space of the whole cultural influence, but at the same time have been promoted every time I've been on maternity leave. Uh, three kids, and I'm now founder and CEO of a company called Team Women Australia, which is really in this space. My question is actually about whether you think that there's a lifestyle change or a shift in age that happens to make it worse. Because my experience in my career has been that, you know, there was a point in which it, confidence just was not a concern. And then I went back into the workforce after having three kids. And I was like, what the freaking hell happened? Like, it just, like, disappeared. So I just wonder if that is something that's impacting women. And Did everyone hear that? Or you want to replace? So, um, yes, we try. Have we got a roving mic? Anyway, it was about whether um, a lack of confidence is something to do with age and, and the stage of your career, and your point being that you came back to work, and I must say I related to that too, um, after children, and having had no problem with confidence beforehand, but then found that you felt, um, no, you felt a lack of confidence. So, any... Um, God, I'm on that leave now, so is that what I've got <laughs> waiting for me when I go back? Uh, um, well, yeah, you know, I, I understand completely what you're talking about because I, you know, I don't know, who's under 25 here, few people, and who's under 30? You know what, I reckon I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof till I hit about 30. And then I'm not sure whether it was erosion over the years of blokes in the workplace, colleagues, 
um, not quite sure, but I had a baby when I was 34 and was in the unfortunate position where I was the breadwinner, so I had to go back to work as soon as I possibly could. So there was nothing like a confidence killer for having leaking breasts, pumping <coughs> before I went on air, sometimes having them explode on air, which is great. A bit gross, I know, but true story. Um, and, and also, because television so hooked into your appearance, you know, I wasn't, you know, I found it really difficult after I had a baby to be televisually appealing. So I found it difficult to lose weight and I felt pressured to do that. I'm not going to lie about it. I did. Um, I felt, you know, pressured to, you know, conform to the televisual norm. So for me, that was sort of my confidence thing and, and had never really thought about it that much until after I had a baby. Yet at the time, I had a really supportive boss. I had a boss who was absolutely sensational. He worked my work hours as much as he could around what I needed with a small child. He was terrific. But it was when my son was about three and we had a change of management at seven. And that's when I started to have my confidence really erode. And I, and I don't know what the primary driver of that was, but I deeply suspect it was because I suddenly had this three-year-old child that relied on me that needed me to go out, hunt and gather and bring it home. And I was, in, I was deeply worried that I wasn't going to be able to do that and then worried about my skill set. I think I had an unnamed executive tell me I read news like the Duchess who smelt a turd. And I said to him at the time, that's fantastic. Do you have any constructive criticism for me? <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I understand what you mean, you know, and there's always that threat, even though you're not allowed to talk about it, um, that you have a use-by date as, as a woman in television. And that was looming over my head too. And I, you know, I didn't believe that was just feminist literature. I'd seen it go on around me. So, yeah, I, I remember thinking when I was about probably 30, 36, 37, having a crisis of confidence, like the same sort of thing that you're talking about. I actually had the opposite experience. I, I found that for me, it just gave me absolute perspective. And um, yeah, I think I was in such a rush and um, so impatient. And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, everyone is different, but I, I found that it just gave me this sense of perspective about, um, you know, understanding what I wanted. And yeah, it was, it was quite different. But I think it's just an individual thing too. I think there's still a sense that you have to be grateful uh, when you go back to work. Um, I think it's still very strong. Um, and if you're given a concession such as some flexible work, which is usually a full-time job, compressed uh, into less, uh, less days and therefore on less pay, um, you're still meant to be the one saying, thank you so much for letting me work for you like a slave. Um, and the other, <laughs> the other point is that the um, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Liz Broderick, just released that report on pregnancy discrimination. Nearly half the women surveyed had suffered from pregnancy discrimination of some form. Now, at its most extreme, these were women who were coming back and were sacked, jobs restructured. It is ripe. Um, and look, we've known this for years, but this is the first full-scale survey that we've seen. So none of that was in your imagination. There was a lot of factors going on. Um, and that still, it's not every organisation, it's not every environment, 
but we know that in Australian business there's still um, quite an issue there. I, I had a, um, when I, I can't remember what child, it's terrible, but one of my children. <laughs> That's right. Um, Barry Cassidy and I had um, children who were about, around the same age, and um, so we worked um, around uh, their, their, their school hours, and, um, and I, it used to drive me crazy. It happened for about two months, and this will be a story that resonates with some people in this room, but um, every day I would, uh, you know, walk out of the office at ten past three to having been in the office, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, and one of my colleagues would say, oh, early mark, early mark. Oh. Barry would walk out, you know, nothing. So I thought, it just really got under my skin. And I felt, I was so annoyed that it was getting under my skin. So for three days in a row, I rang him at 6am. Hi, just letting you know, I'm, I'm on my way to work. <laughs> and after three days, that's it. I love revenge. <laughs> Revenge is very underestimated. <laughs> now, we have, okay, we've got um, a question there. Could you just tell us who you are? I'm Rachel. I run a PR and comms business called Get the Message. Um, I, I work in the man's world and that my business is focused in engineering and infrastructure and I've been that for quite some time. And I guess it's probably mainly from it, but just a comment for all of you. Um, I'm interested in whether, when you're a woman working in the man's world and often you're at a table and you're the only woman at the table, can you be a confident and forthright woman and maintain your femininity without coming across as bitch? I have this theory, right, and, and this applies to commercial television, I'm not quite sure about your world, Rachel, but in, in, in television to survive, I have this theory, you do one of two things as a woman. You either become a pretty, pretty princess who bats her eyelids and just sits perched on the edge of the seat like this, riveted by everything that every man ever says to you. Or you become a swearing, leaning back bloke going, yeah, mate, no, no worries. That's what I chose. I couldn't do the pretty princess. So, you know what I have figured out, though, and, and this is as, as the years have gone by, and the really interesting thing is that at the end of the day, I think there absolutely is no substitute for just being yourself. You know, I think that's all you can offer when you sit around a table, and it doesn't matter whether it's a bunch of women or a bunch of men or whoever, I think you just have to be yourself. And I don't worry about my femininity, I don't worry about any of that sort of stuff. I just think, you know, all I can do is sit here and be me. <laughs> and if they don't like that, well, they don't like that. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. Because otherwise you're going to spend the whole night sitting with them second-guessing yourself, you know, and then you you won't have a great conversation with anybody. So, you know, just be you. You're fabulous, I can tell. That's but that's confidence, isn't it? I mean, you, yeah. see, you see a lot of advice about things like, um, you know, in those environments you're talking about sort of men talking over women and what to do. But there's actually no polite way to say, I'm not finished yet, like, stop, excuse me, I'm still going. So... But one thing that I have observed um, a senior woman I know uh, do is if a person, usually a man, interrupts her speaking, she just keeps talking and just finishes her sentence at the same pace and the same intonation and, until he realises what he has done. Or she, sometimes women jump in. I jump in sometimes. Um, so I think that's a really effective way to just, you know, finish your sentence. Yes, that's really good. Just keep talking. <laughs> 
Yes, great point. Um, yes, we have a question up there. Hi, Mickey. I'm Okay, thank you. <laughs> I knew Kate when we were at uni. She was way cool. Okay, oh, nice stories. Nice stories. A couple of interesting things. We, I'm on the dark side of PR industry, but we um, we had a client who was very much in the male management here at one point. who had a theory that he would always hire insecure overachievers because, as a result people would be constantly striving for recognition. And I guess I'm curious about the interrelationship between both the confidence that being a little bit insecure, that you actually get technically so good. And if you combine that with being articulate, which our three core panelists are, you then have an advantage because you're not just forthright and confident, but you know your stuff well enough to defend your opinion and do it articulately. Any experiences there? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. Um, and you know, I think, I think in my experience, I'm a journalist, um, and I, I have found myself managing a lot of other journalists. You know, as you know, Nick, I didn't set out at university to to uh, you know to be an executive or to to necessarily manage. And I think it's really interesting too. It's in every profession, but you know, you're good at a job and you're promoted, and you're good at that job, and you you continue to be promoted. But I, do, I absolutely think what you're saying is right, you know, developing that technical expertise. Um, but then to, to your point too, just being yourself around that executive table. And again, um, speaking up, asking those questions and, uh, and not being afraid to do that because half the people around that table have no idea what's going on either. And so, you know, talking about that is just terribly important. And I've, I've been very lucky, particularly in this position, to have a great mentor in um, Kate Dundas, who is the, the director of radio at the ABC and a really experienced woman, very experienced around an executive table. And I think professional generosity is so important. And professional generosity in us women is really important. But I've also had fabulous mentors who are men who have really ensured that um, I am confident in areas which are new to me. And I think yeah, it's, it's not just about uh, supporting each other as women, but it's also recognising great men who are also really intent on changing things. I think that's a great point about having confidence in your technical skills, if you like, if you like to call them technical. I think that for a lot of women that resonates. Um, and I just wrote a story about this, strangely enough, being the topic du jour um, in the legal profession. And I spoke to quite a few women who are working in those very toxic, sort of top-tier law firms. I suppose we might have one or two here. Um, and one of the things that they don't have a problem with is understanding that they are very, very good at what they do. Well, of course they are. I mean, they're graduating at the top of the university, you know, law, law degrees and so on. Um, so that's, I think, a really interesting way through in some of this discussion. You know, just think about what you do. Someone I once heard, a, a male mentor to a lot of women, and he said, do an audit of your skills and do it on a regular basis. It will give you an incredible burst of confidence and it's absolutely well-placed confidence. It's really tangible. So, yes. Oh, sorry. Okay, one here and then we'll... Hi, um, I'm Lily Fuller, I'm a reporter at the Herald. Um, I'm eight months back from maternity leave myself and um, I have to say, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I can't fault them at all. But my question is, I also have two older stepchildren and, and sometimes it just really feels like survival. My question for you is, having had more than in some cases more than one child, is it okay to sort of just do what you have to do to get through for a period or 
and, and then perhaps once your children are a little bit older, you can you can step back into it. Or do you, do you just can you never back off? You just always oh, no, back off, back off. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's totally okay. I mean, I, I think we put place so much pressure on ourselves around these things, and um, and I, I absolutely think that you've got to do what feels right, and and just forget about you know all the pressure around that you place on yourself about where you want to be. Um, and you know, I've had lots of conversations with with uh, my female colleagues about maternity leave and what's right and what's wrong and opportunities that are coming up. I just think you know, if, if this opportunity is not right for you now, that's absolutely fine because there's going to be another one. If in fact you've been chosen for that particular opportunity, then you're good enough to be chosen for, for the next one. And I think if you place too much pressure on yourself, it's um, it's counterproductive, and then you get into a confidence spiral as well. Enjoy this time. Yeah. You know, I just think it's so precious. I yeah. remember coming back from having... Um, I had a two-year-old and I had twins. Um, sorry, some, some former colleagues here will be rolling their eyes. Um, but, um, and I remember Greg Highwood, now, of course, the CEO of Fairfax, who was my editor, just saying, now, you just tell me what you, know, what you want to do. As it turned out, after the twins, I couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> <laughs> But, of course, I did go back part-time. And, and, yes, of course, life's careers are cyclical. Nothing goes in straight lines. I think we've got this, with this silly obsession, in fact, uh, in the corporate world in particular, about this linear career that just achieves everything by a certain age. Well, for women, that's completely impractical. So um, I think the important point is to stay attached. One of the best things I did was to demote myself when my son was young. Um, so we had a change of management, and one of the best things I did was was I went in and said, "Listen, why don't you let me, you know, work on morning news five days a week?" And the, the men in the meeting, I still remember their faces, went, "You do that? You know, it's watched by you know two dogs and a cat who are at home at ten thirty in the morning, you know." And I and I just went, "Yeah." And you know what? It was one of the best things I did because it took. So much of the, oh, my God, I'm such a bad mother. Oh, my God, you know, I'm trying to service all these people and I've got all these masters and I'm not servicing anybody very well. I'm spread way too thin. You know, that was insane. And that was when my son was about three years old. And seriously, it is one of the best things that I did. And at the end of the day, you know, the skills that you have now, you're still going to have when your children are at an age where they're more manageable for you or whatever it is the issue is. So sometimes taking your foot off the accelerator is such a good thing, you know. And I regret going back to work um, so quickly after I'd had a baby. But unfortunately, at the time financially, I didn't have a choice. You know, I had to go back to work. But um, when he was three, taking my foot off the accelerator was one of the best things I ever did. Now, we do have a couple more. Uh, yes. Hi, Deborah Rice from the ABC. Um, I would just like to say that I am among other women even here tonight who uh, also believe that having children can make us more confident. Um, so I just to back up that sentence for me as well. But I'm not going to include the students from the ABC. <laughs> Because they're not so heavy. 
and I immediately let my boss say, you know what, just because you're a woman, doesn't mean that you don't have to hold yourself down and not pointing off and just, you know, don't worry. And it was, it was a very big eye-opener for a naive young woman to realise, oh, actually, this is serious. This is sexism and stuff. Anyway, over the years, I've had fantastic male employers and, and, and less fantastic ones, and I think Kate's experience on one floor might be a bit different to some of us on the other floors. In 1,100 journalists, there are lots of different experiences. But my point um, that I wanted to raise with the women up the front here is uh, reporting on that pregnancy discrimination last week. One of the big issues um, was that men were not the only people discriminating against women. Women were discriminating against women as well. 91% of the women who reported that they had been discriminated against did not make a complaint about it, did not make an official complaint. Now, I, I know women who have made complaints at various times and they've found it has been detrimental to their career. It's not an imaginary thing. It's a, actually a real thing. And I would like to know from women who are on our panel what they think about that and how to address that. I think, I think we, you know, it's got to be raised and we've got, when, we've got to call it out. <coughs> um, and there's got to be visibility around it. And um, because, it, because if there's not, then there's no way of, of changing. And I think in any organisation, just as, you know, my colleague... Um, you know, who, who uh, you know, pointed out me leaving at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's just, it's sometimes it's just, it's just subtle, and and once it's named, um, that's enough. And and sometimes we absolutely need to do more than that. I can give you an example of something that happened to me when my son was much older, with a, a colleague, and um, I was working on a weekend, and my son. I, was single mother at the time and used to take my son in with me to work because I didn't have anything else to do with him. <clears throat> Fortunately, my son's a rugby league fan, so he'd go, oh, Mum, do I have to go into the studio? Can I sit and watch, you know, Manly play whoever? And I'd just go, yeah, sure, no worries. I'd stand next to this bloke and he would say to me, oh, Darcy's in the work again. And I'd go, well, yeah, it was either that or parking at the casino. And he'd go, right, right, wow. And this is a bloke who worked in the industry for years and had children of his own. He went, can't be good for him. And I went, sorry? And he just said, oh, it can't be good for him. I said, well, why is it not good for him? It's manly, it's his team, he's watching them play, he's really happy, you know. Yeah, but, you know, it's no way for a kid to spend a weekend. And I'm looking at him thinking, and where were you when your kids were little and you were poncing around the world, my friend? You know, um, use that voice. I don't use that voice. No, that was my internal voice. <laughs> I, that was just my internal voice. Going, I'm sitting there thinking, don't say anything, don't say anything. He wants an argument, he wants an argument, don't say anything. So I just smiled sweetly and I just went, oh, well, I guess that's my thing to worry about. Thanks for your advice. But it, it, it's little things like that as well. So, but what reporting mechanism is there for that? And this went on and on and on and on for quite some time. So I suddenly had this bloke questioning my mothering capability, even though it really was none of his business. Um, you know, and, and that's sort of a, just this tiny, poof you know, 
fragment of the sort of erosion that gets chipped away at you as, as a mother, as a woman, as whatever. I don't know that there's anything that you can do about that except suck it up. But when it comes to things like maternity discrimination, I think the more women that speak up about it, the better. You know, and unless we all support each other, and unless we do, you know, unless we all make a collective decision at some point in whatever workplace that you're in, you know, to go and tell another woman and actually have them back you up, then maybe something will be done. But that 91% figure is absolutely appalling, you know, and I think the more women that speak up about it, it's the only way that something's going to happen. I also think that, you know, privileged women like myself sort of owe it to everyone else to do something about it if something like that comes up, you know. We need to... Somebody's got to be the person who makes that complaint. I mean, if it's if it's not you, who's it going to be? I mean, just on motherhood as well, I also think that... Um, I, I, for one, found going back to work to be a great relief after a year off um, with the babies too. So, you know, don't... There's also that pressure as well to stay at home for some people that you're um, you're not as good enough mother if you, if you don't sort of stay at home for forever and ever. Um, so you know don't feel that pressure as well. Oh, I've Jeff. got a hundred students who come through the front door at the beginning of every year, and um, the boys can there are only 150 boys in that age group. Um, I have trouble getting the girls to speak in class. And I really would like them to take more risks. They're terrified of this. What advice have you got for me? <laughs> I've got plenty. <laughs> Just, you know, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know. And and I don't I don't understand why people are so risk-averse, you know. I know it comes back to a, a confidence thing. But I think... I know it's why fear of failure, you know. Yeah. But but unless you fail, how the hell do you give success value? You know, you've got to screw up a lot to give success value. And I still think, Chris, that we have um, a lot of intolerance towards mistakes uh, within organisations. I know there's a lot of talk about that, and I completely agree. That is the way you learn. But I hear a lot of this, and there's a lot of lip service, certainly in the business community, about this. Oh, yes, we've got to innovate. I mean, what company doesn't have innovation in its, you know, brochures and so on. But actually, there's there's not a great deal of tolerance for mistake making. And I, I think that that's not, that's not a gender statement, but I think we still, as a culture, I, st I still think that's a difficult... But one. this is at a student level where kids want to be professional communicators, yeah? Where they, they, they want to be journalists. Like, you know, I, I sit there and, and, and say to them, well, how are you ever going to ask a question at a media conference? How are you ever going to stand up if you don't practice now? And this is a friendly environment. These are your friends. These are, these are your students who, who you're here with, you know, and part of actually being a journalist is standing up in front of people and asking questions. How are you going to do that if you're not going to do that in a room full of people that you know and, and, and who, who like you, presumably? I mean, there might be a couple who don't, but, you know, <laughs> let's just assume that you have friends in the audience. And if you can't stand up and ask a question in front of friends, I have three here tonight, thank God they're here. But, you know, if you can't stand up and ask a question in front of your mates, who are you going to stand up and ask a question in front of? But, Gemma, is that worse than when we went through UTS about three years ago? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I went through Yes, 30 years ago. Yes, yes. I was there. I, I used to talk all the time. But, yes, you did. That's uh, true. <laughs> That's true. Young women in my classes are frightened of the history. And I want that to go away. And no matter how much I love them or boss them or encourage them, um, sometimes I never make the break. And I would love some advice about how to make the break. Jenna, I reckon that it's really important to teach... And this is something it took 
embarrassingly long time for me to learn, is that journalism is a skill that is learned, you know, it's learned through practice. Getting good at picking up the phone and cold calling a minister's office is terrifying the first time you do it. But then you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and then you just, you got them on speed dial, you don't even think about it, you just do it. Um, you know, it's something, if you can teach those girls that these are skills that are learnt through practice, then that's a really valuable lesson. And I think that there's some evidence um, by a researcher called Carol Dweck, uh, who Dweck. did some, yeah, Dweck in the 80s did some research around how bright girls are taught you are either smart or you're not. You're smart or you're sensitive. Um, you're bright and therefore everything you do um, just comes naturally to you. And those girls who are told from childhood that they're just a bright girl and that everything will be easy for them don't learn that process of trying and failing and getting better and practising and, and improving. And boys are taught from a young age that, you know, try, try and concentrate, focus on the job, use these skills, get better over time. And, and you know, if you teach them that that's, that's the way to do it, you might maybe have some success. Um, we're going to have to, to wind up. I know we've got a lot more questions, but the panellists are going to be here, and I'm sure they're not going to fob you off, so please feel free to, to come and ask questions. I'm just conscious we've, we've run a little over time. Um, but it's been fantastic, and can you join me in thanking our fantastic <laughs>